I suspect it probably comes out of uh, a desire for cost cutting. I think I would argue that the discussion around in-housing should never start off from a PL discussion of, of how do we save money. I mean, there's so many good reasons why you would do it. Hi, I'm Darren Woolley, founder and CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultancy, and welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media, and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Now, if you're enjoying the Managing Marketing podcast, please either like, review, or share this episode to help spread the word and wisdom from our guests each week. This week, We're revisiting the topic of in-house agencies, but from a different perspective. Much like advertising agencies, it seems that for in-house agencies, the creative or content side of the in-house model appears to get more attention than the media side. Yet in both, much more money is invested by companies into media channels than the content that run in it. Why is that? And what are the specific challenges and benefits of establishing an in-house media function? To discuss this, please welcome to Managing Marketing Podcast someone who knows firsthand, the head of media at Splash, the in-house agency at Treasury Wine Estates, Ben Oliver. Hi, Ben. Hey, Darren. How are you going? Very well, thanks. And and thanks for joining us. Um, look, uh, the first thing I, I, I noticed looking at your LinkedIn profile is that you're not one of these people that sort of leapt straight out of high school or university straight into a media buying role, are you? You, uh, you actually came via journalism and PR. That's right, yeah. I think it's it's fair to say that uh, the, the trajectory of my career has been anything but linear. Um, I, I kind of just tend to, to follow th- you know, subject matter and things that I found interesting and and probably until fairly recently didn't have a really solid plan about where I wanted to end up and um, but yeah I uh, came out of uni back in Perth at Curtin um, sort of a fresh young hungry journalism graduate thinking I was going to change the world and then got into that for a few years and then um, and then realized I probably wasn't going <laughs> to change the world at all and then um, which might be a reflection of my talent in that area I'm not sure but and then, um, yeah, took a break, went overseas and did the London thing like a, like a lot of my generation have done and lived there for a few years and I uh, did some random work. I worked at Royal Bank of Scotland in credit card security, which was, you know, advising clients on how to keep their customers' credit card details safe, which for me was wild given I had no training in that, but it was literally just all on the job stuff. And I, I, got, I got given a manual in my first week and it was just literally told, read this for two weeks and then, then you're on the phones after and like surely surely this is not the way that we do this but um <laughs> you know I, I didn't care I was like I was 25 and I'm like yeah whatever I'll just I'll you know I'll, I'll give it a crack and and then um it was a, it was a great it was a great it was a really good job for London because I got paid pretty well and then which meant I could travel as well as do the London thing and not not everyone finds jobs where you can kind of afford to do both so I was quite fortunate um and just a, just a completely different area to be exposed to and then yeah on the way home uh my visa ran out and then I was freaking out about coming back to normality and a mate of mine said I just did a uh, tour with Bus About one of the tour companies over there and he, and, he, and he said look I think you'd make a good tour guide why don't you apply for that so I thought why not went through the application process and I think I was one of about um, 30 odd people to be chosen for training in, in 09 and so yeah did that for, for a summer which was a lot of fun uh, and then when I got back I sort of had to work out what I was going to do with my life and 
by that stage I'd sort of decided journalism really wasn't the path forward for me and um, one of my my cousin actually who uh, had done some journalism he he'd been working in agencies for a little while and he said look you know have you thought about coming over to a PR agency it's pretty applicable skill set and I thought, great, let's let's do that, give that a crack, and then um, yeah, got a job with um, a company called Bucken, which is now called We Bucken, or I think they've they've been either taken over in whole or part by Wagner Edstrom, um, and yeah, did that for a little while, and then as I was working in PR, I sort of got interested by the social space and started to upskill in that area and kind of launch the the digital function in that office, um, mostly just around um, things like Twitter and, and LinkedIn, and then. From social, sort of started branching out into broader digital marketing and, and sort of upskilled in areas like SEO and, and CRO and just, um, you know, just other other parts of digital marketing that I hadn't been exposed to. And then, yeah, hopped around a couple of different agencies over the next sort of five years and then, um, yeah, then found myself working at Treasury Wine Estates um, in an in a in-house digital marketing role. And then sort of did that for a couple of years and then, you know, Really, sort of early last year, the business made the decision they wanted to in-house um, a large part of their creative and media functions and, you know, tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, do you want to lead the media team? And, and I'd, done, I'd done a bit of media before that as part of my general kind of digital marketing responsibilities and um, mostly social and, and, and a bit of search and, and a bit of retail. And then for, for me, obviously, the biggest upskill there was the programmatic space, which I'd, I hadn't really been exposed to. So then... I was like, great, I'll happily take it on, but there was a fair bit of <laughs> upskilling to do. So that was uh, another big kind of big upskilling and, and uh, just a period of you know, reading lots of books and doing courses and reaching out to every smart person I could think of and just asking a bunch of dumb questions. And then, um, and then yeah, we launched that in, we started trading in July last year uh, just with sort of the low-hanging fruit, social search and retail added programmatic in October um, and yeah we've really just ticked over just over 12 months now of having all of our biddable media done in-house so we've sort of gone from you know almost zero to um, you know pretty much anything we can we can bid on we've, we've brought in-house in a very short space of time so it's been a bit of a whirlwind but a lot of fun. I have to say that uh, you know and as you say not a linear path but nevertheless a path is a demonstration of great adaptability. Uh, you said that you know when you got into uh, and started dealing with programmatic that you just asked anyone that uh, you know seemed to have more knowledge than you a whole lot of questions. Is that a sort of because it feels very journalistic training you know that's what journalists do isn't it? Is that part of the skill set that you bring? Yeah, and I think it's probably the biggest skill that I can thank my, my journalism career for is that ability to come at, at something with a blank canvas and just ask a bunch of questions and learn learn an area fairly quickly. I mean, I remember one of my old journal gigs, I, I got a job at a magazine called Contractor, which won't be very familiar to your listeners and, and with pretty good reason because it's a pretty niche um, construction industry magazine and um i'd come out of working egn for you know leader slash news corp and um i remember meeting with this editor and being like i don't know i don't know a fucking thing about about construction like and he's like mate it's it's fine you'll, you'll pick it up and you know and then you know sure sure enough within a short period of time i'd kind of get the lingo and um and then also worked i mean i worked for an insurance magazine for a little while and same sort of thing like having to learn all about insurance and all the lingo and, and I think you just 
come at it you know, with an open mind and, and you ask the right questions and you sort of probe and then eventually you sort of you sort of start to get it. So, yeah, I think um, if nothing else, that, that, that sort of grounding in journalism um, set me up really well for how my career ended up changing and uh, and just being open and, and adaptable and um, see so I'm quite I'm quite thankful for that as a as a as a as a background yeah there's also a bit of a sports theme happening here you know you worked for the AFL as the what was a match day uh, oh, match day the, reporter and oh, that was a lot uh, and, of fun yeah <laughs> and public relations officer for Western Australian Cricket Association you know is is sport uh, something that's important to you or a passion or a I sort of honestly, I mean, I love sport, like you know, big big AFL fan and NBA. But I probably didn't seek out those jobs as much as they just kind of happened. Like the the Wacker one was was fun. I mean, that was straight out of uni, and um, you know, did an internship there for six months while I was at uni. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think I got paid. I'm pretty sure I didn't get paid. Now I'm thinking that. And then um, it was just an interesting, cool job that came up, and I thought, you know, let's do that for a bit. And um, and you know, great exposure, and um, and yeah, you know, I got to meet you know all these all these heroes like Justin Langer and um, you know Richie Benno. I mean, that was one that was a highlight. Richie meeting Richie Benno at the at the Perth Test, um, and I remember shaking the great man's hand, and it was like fucking vice. Like I just like, I couldn't believe a man who looks. I mean, he was you know, obviously sprightly, but it was just this like I was like bending down, and oh my god, Richie, like you know. Um, so that was that was quite cool. Um, and then yeah, I suppose the. Um, the the AFL thing again. The opportunity came up to be a do some match day reporting, and this is this was just before the AFL in housed all their content, so they were still using um, I think it was Croc Media at the time was sort of producing all their content. Um, and I mean that was an easy gig. I mean that was like you know you get paid to sit in a, in a in a booth, eat meat pies. I think I think my my role involved. I had to tweet. I had to do three tweets per quarter. A quarter-time report, a half-time report, and then a, and then a full game and full match report, and uh, and it was like two hundred bucks to sit and watch the footy and tweet. I mean, it was it was it was it was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, I remember my, my my wife would say to me, "Oh, you're off to the you're off to the footy again." No, I'm like, I'm off to work. She's like, "Mate, don't call this fucking work. Like, you, <laughs> you get paid you get paid to watch the footy. Like, don't don't pretend like yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, fair enough. Yeah, so no, I, yeah, I don't know. And then I, I did a gig overseas working at the Asian Games, which again sort of came about through some mates and, and it was a cool opportunity. I worked in Guangzhou for, for nearly two months and then um, before that in Doha for about six weeks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I, I reflect on it now. There's been a – sport has been a, a theme throughout all of it. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't say I've kind of actively sorted out as much as the opportunities have sort of come to me a little bit. And, and again, I've just been – kind of open to receiving interesting offers and it's, yeah, it's just kind of happened that way. Trinity P3. Now, there's another convergence here because, you know, in your role at, uh, at at Splash at Treasury Wine Estates and also you mentioned uh, being a tour guide in Europe, you know, but now you've actually founded a, a business called Drinking History Tours in in Melbourne, which seems to combine those two skills quite well. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, the, my my two favourite loves uh, having having people listen to me uh, and drinking. Um, <laughs> my, my my two things I love the most. Um, no, um, yeah, I mean the, the 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 tour guide thing kind of started off. I I did the European tour guide thing. Came back and then I was um, while I was working agency. I also on weekends was working for a tour company uh, called I Am Free, um, doing free walking tours, which was all sort of cash in hand stuff, which was really 
helpful. Um, I'm I'm sure anyone who's worked at agency at a relatively junior level knows just how bad the pay can be. So having the the weekend cash definitely helped out. Um, And then, yeah, did that for about five years. And I'd kind of always toyed with the idea of doing my own tour company and, and couldn't really find the niche that I thought would be interesting. And then the insight I came across, if you'd call it an insight, was that um, there were lots of walking tour companies where you'd sort of walk around the city and it was all kind of academic and you wouldn't really go in and do anything. You were kind of just on the streets and then you were done. And and then, you know, but on the other hand, you had all these pub crawls, which were mostly geared towards the sort of younger backpacker market. And you'd go to these, you know, the, the bigger, more popular venues and you'd get watered down shots. And it was you know, and and I kind of you know had this thought of well, what what if you just went to nice laneway bars, um, and mixed that with some history and some interesting spiels and, and sort of appeal to a bit of a older market and that's kind of where the drinking history tours was born. This, um, you know, the, the, the catchphrase is you know more fun than a walking tour, classier than a bar crawl, um, <laughs> which for me hopefully captured that essence, right? Like you know, people in their in their thirties and forties who don't want to get shit faced on, on bar crawls and, and they don't want to go to places they went to when they were 18 they want to go to you know the, the laneway bars that melbourne's famous for and have a couple of drinks along the way and then you know get exposed to some interesting history they may not know about and um yeah so it's been um a good little side hustle and i, I was it's been it's been good also because i think particularly in my, my day job especially my day job now where so everything i do is really focused on on a very small part of marketing and, and, and comms in general. And so, you know, running the tool company has been great to, you know, get hands-on exposure and things like, you know, channel strategy and, and, and pricing and um, product development and, you know, um, all those things I find quite interesting, but I just don't get the chance to, to really touch on in my day-to-day job. So, um, yeah, it's been a fun I, mean, I, I say hobby. It's sort of bigger than a side hustle, but not, not, not big enough to be a full-time job. And, um, but I'm lucky I've got a lot of contractors who actually do the tours for me now. So really, you know, to be fair, I've kind of got it down to a couple of hours a week where it's, you know, setting up tours, emailing bars and that kind of stuff. And it more or less kind of runs in the background now. Which is so cool. that's uh, called Drinking History Tours. So if anyone yes. finds themselves in Melbourne and wants a, uh, something classier than a pub crawl uh, and uh, Reach something out. that's more refreshing than a history walk, uh, they <laughs> should be uh, uh, booking online, I imagine. Well, I'm sure we can we can work out a, a special rate for you for your listeners, Darren. <laughs> we'll, we'll do mates' rates. Trinity P3. The first thing uh, that I raised, and and you sort of uh, inferred this in the fact that you started at Treasury Wine Estates as a digital marketing manager, right? Um, is that a lot of the conversations around in-housing seem to be around content and and creative and that media, if it's ever mentioned, is usually around paid social media, SEO perhaps, or, or paid search. You know, very rarely do we hear or have conversations around the full media um, servicing actually going in-house. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I suspect it probably comes out of uh, a desire for cost cutting. I think it's not. I would argue that the discussion around in housing should never start with a um, should never start off from a PL discussion of, of how do we save money. I mean, there's so many good reasons why you would do it, and I think. But you know, generally, it it, it kind of comes down to how much we're we paying our agency versus 
how much would it cost to do it ourselves? And I think creative, um, my suspicion, lends itself to that conversation. You know, particularly now, I think you know m- most companies realise just how much content you need to serve, whether whether it's your marketing functions, whether it's sales. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a it's a machine that needs feeding. And I think you know um, um, the 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 economics of bringing that in house usually stack up pretty well compared to what agencies can do. I think, you know, it depends on the nature of the creative, obviously. I think if you, you know, and when you're pairing, I mean, obviously at the, the outputs themselves, but they've, you know, I think um, the the hard thing is to obviously get the outputs right, but also the, you know, the creative insight and the creative strategy that, that informs the, cre- the, the the build of the creative. So I think from a from a pure build point of view, I think, it, it you know, the economics really stack up. And I suppose that the tricky thing is ensuring that, you know, you've, you've obviously thought about, um, the, the creative insight and, and the strategic framework for where that creative is going to come from. So I think that's probably why creative just tends to be first and foremost. And, and you know, I mean, at Treasury alone, I mean, the, the sheer output of the creative we do, and, you know, it's not just about building MREX or, or, or building, you know, 169s for YouTube. It, it's that it's, it's building, you know, um, you know like um, toolkits for, for, for pen folds that they're distributing across their regions. And, um, and it's and now, I mean, the creative guys are moving into all kinds of interesting territories. It's bottle design and things like that. So it's, um, yeah, and I think media, look, I, I generally I don't think that media is a cost-saving function. I think, um, you know, media agencies have a certain um, economy of scale that, um, that allows them to be pretty, you know, on, on paper at least, pretty cost efficient. So I think from a media standpoint, um, I suspect that most companies look at it and go, we're probably not going to save a lot of money bringing this in-house. And from our point of view, we never saw media as a cost-saving function. You know, the reason we wanted to bring it in was really, you know, transparency of data, um, proximity to data, and and speed of turnaround were really the three big ones for us. And, you know, I, I kind of use the example of, you know, like like I mean, you mentioned paid search before. I mean, you know, we've had some crazy stuff where brand will be like, you know, I want, we want to get a paid search campaign up, you know, tomorrow. Um, and we can, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, you know, we cut some corners getting there, but we can, we can, we can get it done, you know, and, and I think an agency could do that, but, you know, you're looking at um, extreme pricing to get that done, or in some cases they may not just be built to, to be that, um, that agile. So I think, um, yeah, the, and, and I mean, for the creative guys as well, it wasn't just about saving money. It was also about the speed. Um, and, you know, my boss will talk about this. It's, the, it's the proximity to the brand team that to inform the creative work that makes such a big difference. Like, you know, the, the ability to to have that, you know, walk over to a brand manager's desk and have that quick chat and sense check an idea and and and, and also to be closer to the strategy. I think agencies often talk about that, you know, true partnership. But I think at the end of the day, most of them are in they're, they're in different offices and different buildings. And you just you can't get as close to the strategy and you know the, the the mechanics of the business as you can when you are in the same the same building. So, um, sorry, that's a really long winded response, but yeah, I, I, I think that's probably that's my take on the creative versus media in housing focus. I guess, yeah, yeah, because it's interesting that uh, we've really only heard about very large organisations, and what I mean by that is the multinationals. You know, it was the uh, the big. 
uh, PNGs and the uh, mm. and the Unilevers and and that sort of global scale that really considered even you know in the last few years about media coming in house. And one of the things was this whole idea of the cost of technology. You know, because media uh, these days a lot of it is all around you know access to DSPs or trading mm. desks. You know, and and when you talk about data, you know, actually investing. In the ability to for your customer data platforms, so that you can actually interact with those, has been an obstacle. Because when you yeah. think about it, creative is uh, a few more computers, uh, maybe a printer, and you know, and, and a couple of other things, relatively low cost to yeah. c- compared to some of these big platforms, aren't they? Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, the, the the tech stack discussion does scare a lot of people off when it comes to media, which is why you know social. Um, you know, th- those walled gardens tend to be the first ones. If they decide to bring media in, they're, they're kind of the easier ones. It's it's you know, free to access and, and relatively simple to use. I think the we had a big discussion around where we draw the line with the, the first iteration of the in-house media team. And, I mean, social was always going to come in. Um, search, um, YouTube through Google Ads was always going to come in. Retail media was always going to come in. And I think, um, yeah, the, the programmatic one was one we, we spent a lot of time trying to work out, you know, is this right for us? Because um, I think I get asked this a lot, whether, like, we want it in-house, should we do programmatic? And my answer is always, like, it depends because mm. I think, it, it, you know, it depends on your level of sophistication and particularly level of media spend. Like, you you, you do need to really try and develop a, a, a relatively accurate idea of, how much you think you'll be spending on programmatic before you can even have that discussion. So I think for us, you know, we went back and forth a little bit and then we decided, look, you know, our programmatic spend is not going to be huge, but we think it's sufficient enough to sustain ongoing. Um, and it was probably less about the tech stack and more about the people to actually run it because, you know, media traders are pretty hard to find Um and you know the, the market out there, you can earn you know, pretty good money uh, with 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 some decent programmatic experience. So, I think for us, it was um, you know it was entwined in that discussion about ad tech was okay. Getting a DSP is one thing, but you know, are we actually going to be able to find someone who can who can run it? And and if and if you know, and what are the redundancies around around that headcount? If if they're you know hit by a bus, God forbid, or they're sick, how do we make sure that the wheels don't fall off because our, our traders are gone and and then that leads to a whole discussion around upskilling and and then you know um, managed service backups with your DSP and, and things like that so yeah it's always different per per each company um, but yeah we, we just felt that the again the proximity to the data um, the speed of turnaround and, and the transparency were, were, were important enough for us to, to go down that path Trinity p3. You said that it was all paid media that you're handling now. What about things like out of home and and broadcast TV and and yeah. So so is that also something that is part of your remit, or is that something you're sharing with an agency? Yeah. So um, our agency um, partner, um, uh, Mindshare, they that so the way the way kind of the, the, it's structured is we work with them on. So so I'll take a step back. Um, Let's say that there's a brand brief that comes in. There'll be a budget. There'll be an objective. Um, myself and, and Mindshare will get briefed at the same time. Mindshare takes the lead on, you know, 
Uh, I, I don't come from a media background, so I find all these terms really funny. Connections planning, um, connections architecture, so all these bullshit terms. But um, I mean, essentially, you know, what bucket of money goes where? They take the lead on that. They've got, you know, they've got the tools and the expertise. And so, once they've had that sort of first iteration, we'll have a discussion around that because it's a reach-based planning tool, and we'll need to sort of apply that art versus science. And you know, where do we up weight and down weight based on inputs like attention, for example, and um, and our own data to to feed into what they've got. So once we've kind of once we're happy on the on the connections plan, we take all the digital elements and then brief that out, and then um, they'll take all the non digital. So um, yeah, like like basically out of home linear TV, commercial radio are the the three big ones they look at, and and you know most of that's really um, out of home. So that that was always we, we were never going to look at taking all media in house in the first run. It was always going to be just focused on the digital. And then, you know, there's, I wouldn't say there's been open discussions about whether we take more in-house because I think, again, it's this discussion where it's different for every company. So I think about a UE, for example, up at the Gold Coast and they do everything. Like they've got a, they've got a TV desk and, and they're, they're, com- they're completely in-house, all their media. Whereas, you know, for other companies, it doesn't make sense to go beyond social and search. And I think for us, I think based on our scale, Based on the way we're structured, I think where we've settled now is probably where we're going to be for a little while. Um, I think, you know, again, for something like Out of Home where agency, uh, the holding co's have that uh, those economies of scale for negotiation on rates and it's something that we as, a, as an individual business just don't have access to that. Um, so I think, you know, really I kind of see Mindshare as being our key partner on those elements and, you know, moving to a hybrid model was a little bit, um, I wouldn't say tricky. It was just a new way of working. We had to just, you know, work out the processes as we were, as we were responding to campaigns in some cases, you know, the old um, building the plane while you're flying it sort of analogy. So I, I wouldn't say it was painful, the transition. It was just a different way of working. It took a, a bit to get into our groove and now we're there, um, you know, I, 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 I don't think there's no there's no real plans to kind of reevaluate yeah. whether we extend that into offline anytime soon. Well, Ben, you can never say never because you know we're already no, seeing um, uh, you know uh, over OTT over the top as they say in America, but you know on demand uh, for linear um, uh, from linear uh, sources, you know, and uh, they're talking about programmatic uh, digital outdoor. You know, once these things happen, it uh, then changes the whole mechanism, doesn't it? Well, yeah, and, and Rudson's made this point, right? Like he, he kind of calls bullshit on the whole digital versus non-digital divide because it's he's right. I mean, it's it's all, it's pretty much all digital, you know I mean? And it's more about how you transact. And, you know, and, and to your point around programmatic out of home, like we've actually done a couple of in-house um, campaigns, which we weren't really expected to do until probably next year. But we got a couple of opportunities. We thought, oh, look, let's let's test ourselves and, you know, if nothing else, it was really good opportunity for our traders who haven't done that sort of campaign before to get exposed to it. And, you know, programmatic out of home, I mean, I had to learn about programmatic and then programmatic out of home is such a weird little beast inside a beast, right? It's it's There's all these weird little structures and how, you know, dealing directly with the SSPs and then the SSP inventory they've got and some some publishers are on PMPs and some are on Open Exchange, and but then you know then there are certain minimum investments with some, and then you can get O through this one, but not through that. There's all the it's such a weird yeah. little ecosystem. So, um, so we we did that, and then really then it became okay from a consumer's point of view, it's all out of home. They don't see the distinction between whether it's digital, programmatic, or IO static. So then we were like, okay, 
what when does mind share do out of home and when do we do out of home and and for us the divide came down to uh objectives so if it's a if it's a brand campaign so pretty much mid funnel or above then mindshare really takes over the out of home component but where we've been using programmatic out of home is more for you know short term parts of purchase immediate sales kind of revenue driving activity so i'll give you an example we we we've recently actually just wrapped up a campaign for one of our MPDs, um, 19 Crimes, Cali Gold. So it's a it's a sweet sparkling wine under the 19 Crimes um, range. Um, that's that's another Snoop line extension. And, um, you know, distribution across Dan's, BWS, um, Coles Liquor Group. And so Brand came to us and said, how do we support this launch? And so we, we sort of said, look, we think it can be a mixture of channels, but we think that prog- programmatic out-of-home should take the lead here given we can buy, you know, within 200 metres of... of certain stores, we can do a footfall measurement study and, and then report that back into you. So then the speed and the ease of the turnaround and, and the measurement of footfall, we felt like that's something we can we can do internally. We don't need to brief Mindshare on that. But yeah, for the more for the bigger, bigger, more integrated kind of brand campaigns where the objectives are, you know, driving mental availability, salience, awareness, consideration, all that, all that good stuff. That's where we, we go with Mindshare. So that's our line. But you know, f- I mean, for all businesses, it's different. But we, after a bit of test and learning, we just felt that that was the most efficient and effective way to kind of break up those components. Yeah. And and you've mentioned there, you know, that geographic ability of targeting, you know, within mm. a couple of hundred metres of a retail outlet. But then there's all sorts of things like uh, day parts or time of day, yep. you know, to get people on their way home or yep. or on their way out. Um, and even temperature, you know, that was one of my uh, ones that I'm waiting for the day that when the temperature hits, you know, a certain amount, which uh, beverages company is going to ha- have every outdoor billboard showing their product with that beautiful product shot of the condensation running down the outside of the bottle, yeah. which is the thing that when you're thirsty, you know, just makes you want to buy the product. It's yeah, and I mean that's that is one of the great things with programmatic out of home is the the external uh, data feeds that can inform when creative goes live and you know things like temperature or you know I've I've heard all kinds of things like you know how the stock market's going or you know yeah. whatever those data sources look like. The, the the only thing I'd say with that is from a marketer's point of view. That sounds fucking cool. Like, oh, we can, if the temperature hits above 30 degrees, we'll, we'll switch out the creative and we'll serve them, you know, one that has a um, hot outside today kind of messaging. I, I'm Again, maybe it's my old journal background. I'm really cynical on whether that kind of creative actually drives a higher brain uplift than, than just a general, you know, messaging. Yeah. And, and I, I could be wrong, right, but I was, at, I was at a summit recently and I asked the question like, yeah, cool. Programmatic out of home can do all this kind of stuff. It sounds awesome. Looks great in a PCA. You know, great story for the marketing team internally. But show me a case study where someone's done this and it's actually led to a higher uplift compared to non-responsive creative. And, and I haven't found one yet. And that maybe there's one out there, and I'd love if someone could send me one. But you know, from a performance point of view, that stuff's a lot easier to measure, right? Because you just A/B test it and. Does the yeah. dynamic work better than the not? And it's it's kind of an easy one. From a from when you, when you, when you talk about programmatic out of home and branding, I'm always a bit cynical on these cool fucking tools. And it's you know the market is froth over them. But I'm like, is this actually? And like, we'll trial it. I mean, I, I, I'm not I'm not against the technology or the ability, but I, I think my default is always like, how do we create a test that's going to show this works rather than just do it and then it becomes a a cool 
talking point in a PCA. So I'm, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm overly cynical, but that, that's always my starting point is ha- how is this going to be more effective? Because it's going to cost more, you know. Well, and and the other thing that often gets in the way of any of those sort of responsive campaigns is, and and you mentioned it earlier, you know, actually trying to align all of the various parts, such as the content team, the media team and the marketing team, to actually get aligned on this and and deliver it, you know, next day or, you know, in real time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, I guess, one of the benefits of, Having some of these functions in house is that is that ability to even if you perhaps don't have the perfect structure or, or per, perfect ways of working, the fact that you've just got proximity to the right people means that you can almost you know you can jerry rig alignment uh, and, until you get the process and the and the, and the yeah. uh, everything else right. Trinity P three. Now, Ben, you said uh, that media buyers are not easy to come by. You know, I, I heard a story in New York about a large client that bought their uh, programmatic in-house and uh, and hit the agency up for about 40 staff members to come and work for them uh, across the river in New Jersey. It was a New York agency and uh, six months later came back and said, oh, 30 of them left, could we have some more? You know, so wow. <laughs> and the agency yeah. went, hang on, hang on, we're not giving away the uh, the most valuable asset that we have. It well, is an issue though, isn't it, finding talent generally because the agencies certainly are struggling to uh, recruit talent and keep yeah. it. Yeah, and it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a weird little island in a, in a sea of marketing roles that, that's kind of going against the tide. Uh, that's a really clumsy analogy. But what, I guess you've got marketing at the moment. It, generally, in the employment market at the moment for marketing is pretty um, tough, right? If you're, a, if you're a, a, a marketer looking for a job right now, it is a really, really tight market. There's, you know, hundreds of people going for roles. Um, I, I know some incredibly well-credentialed marketers who should be picked up like that and, and, are, and are still struggling to find jobs, Right. But then in in media trading, we they just you can't get enough traders. It's 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 the one part of marketing that is really in demand. Um, and I think you know you hear stories about agencies um, who you know they, they they're they're essentially outsourcing the trading to the DSPs managed service because they just don't have enough traders themselves, right? So mm-hmm. um, we we recognised early on because when we hired, we've I've got a team of three. And when we hired, we, we hired one guy as our programmatic, you know, expert. But obviously, we, we, we knew that we couldn't just have everything relying on him. So, um, you know, everyone in, in my team, including myself, um, got skilled up in how to how to do how to how to, how to trade programmatically. And obviously, we'll never be as good as him, but um, you know, to do the, the basics. Um, I had to I had to set up a programmatic out of home campaign a few months ago. So I, I mean, yeah, it's you know to be able to do some of that stuff is really important. And I think particularly in a small team, you're not going to have subject matter experts in in silos. You're always going to have you know the programmatic guy also does social and is learning search. And then another one of the guys on my team, he came from a shopper marketing background, and he had to upskill across everything. But he he now can set up programmatic social. Uh, he's getting pretty good on search now, um, as well as retail. And then I think eventually, you know, it's, it's a classic business problem. As we grow, how, how does that how does that org structure look like? And then 
then do we start to look at more kind of you know heads of and more siloed skill sets like it like it like an agency would be um but it's one of the benefits again of being in-house at an agency you know we're recruiting for a role at the moment and i was interviewing someone the other day who um, works at an agency in a in a social role and he said look i'd love to do programmatic and i'd love to do you know um video but um but you know, I'm I'm in social, and if I want to do that, I've got to switch teams. And I said, well, mate, if you come to me, you, you'll do it. You'll do everything, and then you'll you'll walk away. And, I, and and that's the other thing. I think I, I'm pretty I'm pretty I'm I'm pretty philosophical on the fact that I might get two years out of everyone I hire, right? And yeah. my thing is leave them leave them better than what I found them. And if if they give me a good two years and then they go into their next job and and up their salary 25, 30%, that's a win. That's fantastic. And it's good for them. Um, It's been great for me for the two years, but I'm just, I'm particularly with traders. I just know that if I'm getting more than two years, that's, that's amazing. Right. So I'm like, get someone in, what are they strong on? Fantastic. Leaning to that for the first, you know, couple of months in the background, let's get you skilled up in those other areas so that, you know, eventually the time will come when you're looking for something different you can then say, look, I, you know, and, and they're unicorns, right? People who can do programmatic social search, there's good money mm. for people who've got that skill set. So, yeah. Yeah, it is one of the issues, isn't it, that as the uh, industries become more siloed and more specialist, that people get trapped in those verticals. And yet there is a need for people that have skill sets across all of them. It, uh, it seems that the indies and uh, and the in-house media agencies are the best place for that to happen because I have heard that from a number of sources that the bigger the agency, the more difficult it is to jump across those uh, those teams. Yeah, and I think, you know, that there's – I feel that it's – I mean, there's pros and cons. Obviously, if you're a subject matter expert, you get a deep, deep level of knowledge um, that you just can't get being a generalist. But I think – Often it, it's that classic curve where, you know, the difference between being 80% proficient and 90% proficient, it does give you an extra 10%, but for, for 95% of your campaigns, you may not need that additional yeah. level of proficiency, right? And I think the other benefit I see of being, a bit of a, particularly in, in media training is, you know, there are things that you do in Google Ads and philosophies and tactics that, you know, can often inspire ideas in what you're doing in social or in programmatic. And, and, um, and that's also... That's within a trading environment. But one thing I'm trying to get my guys to think about is don't think of yourselves as media traders. Think of yourselves as marketers who trade because, you know, I've met a lot of people in this industry who are just outstanding at programmatic and just incredible traders but aren't necessarily well-skilled in the broader principles of, of marketing effectiveness. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I, I always say to my guys, look, you need to read How Brands Grow Part 1 and Part 2. Um, you know, you, you should, if you can, Get the chance to to um, do some of the written courses, or at least follow him because he's he gives away half his material for free and on marketing week. And you know, if you un, if you if you if you understand the broader marketing principles, I think it makes you a much more effective trader um, rather than just doing all that media trading in, in a silo. Yeah. Yeah. Also, to get any sort of leadership role, if that's what you're aspiring yeah. to, you do need an understanding of all of those disciplines. Yeah, spot on. So that yeah. you, so that you're able to one attract and manage those really you know, deep specialists and understand how it all comes together. Because I yeah. think that's one of the interesting things is that the more fragmented it becomes, the more difficult it is to get that perspective. Because you know, ultimately, performance comes out of knowing which levers to pull when. 
I think, um, yeah, it's a great point you make. I think, I think it's Jeff Green from the, the trade desk said that you know today's programmatic traders will be tomorrow's CMOs, and you know it's that 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 proximity to um, you know what will arguably become the way that media is bought in the in the future. So um, yeah, I, I think just it, it, you know getting even just getting exposed to some of those areas can be really really beneficial in in your current day job. But yeah, certainly in the long term. So one of the things we've done in the past 12 months with the client overseas is that they'd started building and, and had their um, media function in-house, but primarily, as you said, around you know, SEO, SEM, um, and, and mainly within the wall gardens. But uh, we helped them uh, restructure their uh, roster of agencies and appoint a media agency where half the staff are actually uh, in-house with their team. And it's a really interesting model because one, it gives you access to the agency staff, not just at the agency, but they actually turn up and and work with you in-house. But also there's a rotation as well so that there's this constant feed of of people coming through with various perspectives and that which work really well with the in-house team. What do you think of that model? Yeah, it's interesting. And so so in in that example... But the media team are still employed by the agency, right? Like they're not, yeah. And they work in the building of the clients or how does that yeah. part of it work? Yeah, yeah, they work in, well, and, and sometimes because the client's still working partly um, remotely, but they work with and they have positions with the in-house team. So the client yeah. basically has added an extra X number of staff to their in-house team. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting structure and I think, um I, 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 correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, the, the plus six one model at Telstra feels a bit like what you're describing, um, with that, you know, the, the sort of the, the set roster of of agencies, and I forget who it is now. Who's the uh, media component for Telstra? Uh, OMD. OMD. That's right. Yeah. So they're not they're not in the building, as I understand, but they're no. on weekly calls. But it's essentially, you know, a team at OMD is the Telstra media team, from what I understand. So, yeah, what you're describing is, I suppose, a next step up from that. I guess, yeah, I mean, you definitely get the benefits of redundancy. So if, you know, people um, leave, you're not suddenly scrambling to hire and it's the agency's job to do that, not not the clients, that's a benefit. I guess the only the main thing I kind of ask about, about that is the cultural aspect. Um, you know, like you, you, you're employed by the agency but you're pretty much working for the client. At, at, at what point does that become a bit confusing for the for the individual person, like, I mean, I, I don't know. I, look, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. It's probably just more of an observation on culture. Yeah. Like, how do you how do you maintain that and grow that if you're? It, it feels like you're straddling two worlds and not in either one. I, I think that's the benefit of total in housing, where we are. I mean, I, I, I don't even like the term in house agency. If I'm being totally honest, I, I see ourselves as a business unit, right? We yeah. we work we work with brands, not for brands. Um, and I think we are we have a we have a, a bit of a subculture within Treasury. I think there's definitely some a bit of that, but we are still very much part of the Treasury culture and, and our you know the Treasury DNA and the, the Treasury um, ways of working and and um, what am I trying to say? Um, all that stuff is is our DNA as well, right? So yeah, I, I don't know that that to me yeah. the, what you're describing the cultural part of it is probably the trickiest part to to figure out but again i'm not saying it's a bad thing it just it's probably just yeah. one thing to yeah 
It was best described by one of the clients. They said it's like an extended workbench, you know, where you go yeah. to a labour company and you hire the people from the labour company. They still work for the labour company. Yeah. In this case, they're working for the agency and it's interesting because the agency team is still doing all the things that, you know, in your case, your agency's doing outside of that sort of, you know, the, the digital component, the more sort of traditional negotiated uh, rates area, so yeah. so there's quite a strong connection there. But anyway, look, I, yeah, it's I, interesting. I raised it because yeah. uh, it it seemed to solve one of the problems, which is they struggle to attract new talent into the in-house media function that they already have. And yeah. this one of the one of these solutions was by having a rotation of agency staff through there. Yeah, and, so, and so rotated they, 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 every six months. You oh, know, so I was going to ask you, what, what's the rotation? Yeah. So it's six months, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. And and that's on that's on just media. The six month rotation, or was yeah. that across? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't mind it. It's a, a different way of doing it. I think um, if if they felt that, yeah, and uh, maybe one of our our uh, as I'm sort of thinking while I'm trying to answer the one of the benefits of treasury is that we are we're a house of brains right so yep. you know we we almost are kind of like an agency in that in that sense and um you know one day we'll be on penfolds and the, I mean it's still within the wine category but the, the 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 brands are quite the brands are quite different obviously penfolds is really you know, our luxury icon and then you've got something like a Wolf Blast, which is much more of a commercial kind of workhorse. Yeah. And then you've got the recruitment brand, Squilling Pig and 19 Crimes. And then you've got, you know, those kind of mid-tier kind of not quite luxury, but, you know, like the Pepper Jacks and these. So, so they're all quite – so maybe that, that's that's one yeah, of the Yeah, you've got portfolios. You're managing yeah. portfolios of, uh, of wine lines or brands. Yeah. yeah. So maybe for a single brand, the model you're describing might feel more, more yeah. attractive maybe. I don't know, but it's an interesting different way of going about it, mm. yeah. yeah. Look, Ben, uh, time's got away from us. Uh, I really want to uh, thank you for uh, making the time and having the chat. No pleasure, absolutely. It's been fun. And uh, look, a question before you go, you know, because clearly that uh, you know, you've said that uh, your side hustle's got a bit of drinking in it. What's your favourite drop? Mm-hmm.